There's an old trope in comic books, the clever tech-assisted, shape-shifting mutant, mystical illusionist doppelganger from another dimension impersonates our hero, turning them into a media pariah, costing them their day job, getting them in trouble with the law. These days, you can learn a lot from a comic book. Like a shape-shifting mutant, AI is blurring the lines between human and machine, and it's a challenge and opportunity. Machine learning algorithms streamline credit decisions, chatbots do a pretty good impersonation of live customer support, and scam artists can create a pretty good impersonation of someone applying for credit for, of the AP department, of your CEO, or of you. Hello, I'm Ken Cadet, and on today's episode of the Entrust Cybersecurity Institute podcast, we're going to talk about deep fakes and synthetic identities and the threat this poses to banks and financial organizations. These are the organizations that are required to know their customers, and that is getting harder and harder. To shed light on this issue, we've invited Jordan Avnon, Entrust CISO, and Greg Wetmore, VP of Software Development here. Welcome to you both, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Tarita. So let's dive deeper into this. Jordan, let's start with you. Um, obviously, this isn't just sci-fi at this point. Banks and financial institutions are organizations that are very invested in trust and identity. And yet we've seen a report from Deloitte that predicts synthetic identity fraud will generate $23 billion U.S. in losses by 2030. And another report from Regula that found that 46% of organizations globally experienced synthetic identity fraud just in the past year. So Jordan, help us explain what are deep fakes and synthetic identities and what do they look like in the real world? Yeah, Ken, you said it best. This isn't sci-fi. It really does feel like Hollywood has dreamt up the, the next best fraud scheme when we start talking about synthetic identities. So let, let's take a dive into it, exactly what they are and how they're utilized. The name of a game for a fraudster in general is obtaining money somehow. In the past, and to be perfectly fair, currently as well, we see quick schemes where someone's identity is compromised and in a matter of minutes to sometimes hours, their credit card is charged for fraudulent goods or services, right? This, this isn't anything new or really particularly earth shattering in the field of, of identity fraud. If you do purchase it online, it's happened to you. It's happened to all of us. It's happened to me. Where the curation of synthetic identities differs is it's a longer play scheme and attackers will either fabricate a person or identity altogether. Perhaps they could even assume someone else's identity that's alive. And in some scenarios, we see them assuming an identity of someone that is in fact deceased. Then over a course of time, the fraudster will curate the fake persona and information and augment it with information that isn't accurate, but known to that fraudster. This, this continues for a relatively long period of time, uh, they could be registering fake addresses or signing up for free or low-cost subscriptions to create the address history. It could be creating fake online profiles so that their fake addresses that they've just created get picked up by public information indexing engines. Then when it comes to what I call burning the identity, the fraudster will have all this carried information, which is then used to validate their identity by a lender or a creditor. It, it's it's the perfect cycle of a scheme, really. And if this wasn't scary enough, 
the fraudsters have assumed identity of, of someone that perhaps has online videos of themselves or a social media presence at all. The fraudster can utilize readily available AI tools to essentially clone their voice and and that can then be utilized to full voice matching technology on the the lending institution, the banking institution side. And if they are creating a new identity altogether, then something they create a new voice, which over the course of time is utilized to establish their quote unquote known identity with the lending institution, which we all know is is fake. And what what this does is it really results in a course of undermining the trust and security that banks rely on. Banks incur these costs as a result of of the fraudulent losses, which unfortunately in the long run just drive up the cost of services for for honest paying customers. Yeah, it's kind of scary. What does it what does it look like in the real world? Is this the kind of thing that's happening now? Are 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 deep fakes being used to create accounts today? They are. They are indeed. And and we're seeing this as becoming more and more prevalent and common uh, as as technology advances. The the ways in which this can be done is no longer manual in nature. It's now being being scripted or done in the masses and these identities are being uh, you know farmed out. And you can you can now actually buy these identities that have been curated by one fraudster where another fraudster can continue to you know, add more information to it and then doing what I call burning it and utilizing it to, you know, get sums of money that are in the tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And sometimes the longer term ones are in the millions of dollars. So this is synthetic identities as a service, basically. That's exactly right. You know what, Ken, it's not just the consumer and retail worlds where we're seeing Deep fakes and synthetic identities having a significant impact on cybersecurity in the enterprise cybersecurity world too. Deep fakes are becoming a a very powerful tool for um, bad actors who are executing phishing campaigns to steal credentials uh, and ultimately attempt to to breach organizations. Really, what we should be thinking about that as is identity compromise, uh, and they're using deep fakes and voice deep fakes to you know, call into call centers or um, try and find an IT administrator who will do something uh, with a voice instruction of a person they recognize. So this world of deep fakes and synthetic identities crosses both the consumer's world and the professional enterprise world as well. I was blown away by some of the stats that we see here that, um, was it 46% of organizations globally said they experienced synthetic identity fraud? 37% say they were victims of voice deep fakes and 29% of video deep fakes. Those seem like massive numbers. Um, is this, is this, um, so this is really happening in the real world. Yeah, I think that's exactly the conclusion to reach Ken. It just takes a quick Google search for hack and deep fake and you'll see pages of, of news articles and, um, you know, security blogs talking about how this is really happening in the real world. And, Organizations are being compromised with from attacks that incorporate these multiple dimensions, phishing and smishing, deep fakes, and in order to to gain access. Well, that makes sense, and and obviously it's a obviously it's a rising threat, and it's something we've you know we, we've seen certainly examples of it in a lot of places. Um, what are especially banks? So when we started off talking about banks, 
what can they do to detect um, and avoid, mitigate, stop this kind of this kind of fraud? Okay, and that that question reminds me of of uh, when I was younger. Uh, I remember going to the bank with my mother, in fact, and and she took me to the bridge, and I had to sign a signature card for for my account as a, as a young child. I can remember very clearly my mother telling me, now, now make sure you sign your card good. This is going to be used to verify it's really you in the future. These were back in the days where we were signing checks, right? Decades ago. Uh, the name of the game hasn't really changed much from that scenario, although the technology has significantly. Banks and, and lending institutions in general need to establish the correct baseline identity for their customers. In the industry, this is called know your customer. Where this gets more increasingly difficult, as as I mentioned earlier, in a fully digital transaction society, these known characteristics can be faked or fabricated from the get-go. And I, I really believe over the course of time, banks are going to have to rely on a factor that cannot be faked or fabricated as easily. And, and I'm referring to biometrics here. And, and to be clear, I'm not referring to taking $3 from an ATM machine. This will most likely be applied to high dollar transactions or perhaps even an abnormal transaction where a risk model is used to, to flag it for additional level of, of validation. This is really MFA beyond the traditional cinch, which today, perhaps a lot of us are used to just getting a text message to our a mobile, mobile phone that can, you know, has a four-digit code that we enter into the banking site. We're talking about, uh, you know, where physical transactions can be facilitated, identity verification solutions that utilize a liveliness check. These are going to be paramount to ensure that the person on the other end of the verification process is alive and their identity is is accurately known. Yeah, it seems like biometrics are going to be really key um, uh, in order to sort of translate, I don't know, a trusted identity into a digital space and a digital workflow um, for almost any organizations. Is that right? Are we going to have to get used to a lot more use of biometrics in that sense? Yes. And, and we're seeing that you know, if you go to the airport today, you can see there are vendors that are providing this as an ease of, of going through security. You can you can scan your your retinas or your uh, your fingerprints at, at a kiosk, and you gain most times uh, quicker access to the front of the security line. And that, that's a prime example of where we're going to see this, in my opinion, uh, more on the the banking and financial institution side very shortly. And in fact, we already are. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We've definitely seen it in a lot of places. Um, Greg, talk to us a little bit about how that works. How did how do you make how do you actually prove somebody who is who they say they are when they're when you're interacting with them, you know, only through a smartphone or a computer? Online identity verification has come a huge distance in the last number of years, really driven by a couple of things. The ubiquity of these extremely sophisticated mobile devices with great cameras and other kinds of sensors on them, and the uh, development of, of AI. So now, online identity verification is incredibly secure, easy-to-use, accurate workflow where customers or people can interact with their mobile device 
and um, take a picture of a, a strong identity document, like a passport or a driver's license, can uh, take a selfie with their phone. And behind the scenes, the identification solution is doing a number of things. It's Jordan talked about liveness checking. It's making a determination as to whether or not there's a real person on the other side of that camera and not a picture of a person um, or a video of a person. It's matching the you know selfie image or one or more selfie images to the to the picture on the strong identity document. It perhaps has even read information from a chip. It's a an e-document like a like a passport. Nowadays, most countries have passports with chips in them that actually have highly secure biometrics on those chips. Uh, and it's making a determination: is this person actually alive and right there? Do they match the documents that they presented? Um, and these are these are incredibly strong, secure checks um, that give a relying party a high assurance that the person they're intending to create an account for or execute a transaction with is actually who they say they are. What do you say to people who are concerned about increasing use of biometrics for this kind of application? I've definitely heard that concern. That's that's common. People are extremely sensitive today about their privacy and about releasing uh, information to to relying parties that is sensitive, and they should be. Um, I often get the question, well, well, what if my biometrics get stolen? Like a changed password, I can't change my biometrics. I've got my fingerprints, my face. Um, and and I think that the way that way of thinking about it is isn't quite right. Um, you know, biometrics when correctly done are checking um, and matching at the time of the transaction, matching your face with that picture, um, or matching your fingerprint when your Jordan talked about going through. Uh, an e-gate at an airport. Um, and so people can't steal that in a sense. You can't take a picture of me and execute an online IDB with just a picture of me. The technology is sensitive enough and accurate enough to realize that that's not really the person's face. That's not a real person. It's a picture in a picture. Um, or in the case of a, you know, a, a fingerprint read, a copy of something, you know, a, a silicon copy of someone's fingerprint, um, Again, the technology is sophisticated enough to know that. So I don't think people's biometrics can be stolen in the sense of a password or a uh, OTP token or something else like that. But I do think it's right that people are very careful with releasing information online and want to be confident and sure that they are they are doing business with, they are connected to a trusted party when they're executing some kind of sensitive transaction. And of course, we started ta- this talking about banks, which, of course, are institutions where I think most of us have agreed to give a certain amount of information to um, because they are dedicated you know, to sort of upholding that trust, right? Yeah, I think the other piece of that is the, the privacy and compliance regimes mm. globally really have developed to be very strong vehicles now that compel organizations that are holding uh, PII, including things like pictures or other um, biometric elements, to a very high standard of security and, and with extreme consequences for breach. Um, so again, that, that's part of doing business with trusted organizations. They are held to a high bar now when it comes to uh, personal information. Right, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so if I'm if I'm a leader at a bank, for example, um, it seems like 
with the way the threats are changing, um, with the rise of deep fakes, with the rise of synthetic identities, um, the rise of AI that's powering and scaling this stuff, that um, in a lot of ways, you know, part of part of uh, uh, the role might be to start moving consumers and helping consumers understand, helping account holders understand that there's a certain amount of this new digital identity verification and biometrics um, that's going to have to happen, right? Um, that, that you know, how do you think, like Jordan, how do you think banks should look at helping their account holders evolve how people think about this? Yeah, I think it's it's a, an educational process for all of us as consumers. As, as the financial institutions are continuing to invest in big data gathering and identity verification solutions that can't be thwarted and even the next level of risk modeling to better discern real versus fake on paper, that needs to be communicated to the consumers so that they understand that these technologies are being employed in the back end to further secure the transactions that they're requesting. As part of that, on the consumer side, we have to be uh, knowing and we have to be um, we have to allow that to occur and become more comfortable, as Greg spoke about, that you know there are there's legislation and regulation in place to help protect our own information the bank is utilizing to validate our identity, and we have to be comfortable with that. This process is designed, or should be designed, I should say, to protect the assets of these institutions that will help drive down or maintain costs con con uh, commensurate with the risks that are being performed in these transactions. So we as consumers have to acknowledge that and become more comfortable with allowing these uh, security mechanisms to be in place. Now, Jordan, I think it might come to the point where consumers are demanding, right? Or, or sort of flip their expectation where when I, as a consumer, am going to execute a high value or trusted transaction, I want to be dealing with an organization that is executing some of these um, higher friction checks to make sure this is really me. And um, that's a reassurance. That's sort of there's human nature in an element of human nature of reassurance when you go through a trusted process to execute a high value transaction. Absolutely agree. And we as consumers shouldn't be demanding that, quite honestly. Yeah, it makes sense. So so in other words, like everything's moving fast, fast, fast. But, you know, in some ways, the higher the value transaction, the more it should maybe slow down a little bit, basically, right? Absolutely. So the more I think about this, the more I think about what you guys are saying, it makes me think about um, some of the conversations we've had in the past uh, about uh, about identity and where identity is going. Um you know, Greg, we've talked about this before on the podcast, even, um, you know, given, but even since the last time we talked, there's been so much more talk about deep fakes and synthetic identities and things like that. Um, how do you see the future of identity evolving? Yeah, we, we have talked about concepts like decentralized identity and other sort of privacy centric identity technologies. Um, I definitely think that the developments in deep fake and and synthetic identities just drives even further towards those kinds of technologies where really we put um, people in charge of their identity attributes and I give them very fine-grained privacy-centric controls as to which attributes they release to whom, um, to which service providers, and really 
um, narrowing down so that uh, people can release only what is absolutely required about themselves or or attributes of their identity to a service provider um, when when getting a service. Um, so so really putting people in control of their identity attributes and giving them fine grain privacy centric view of that is definitely where identity or digital identity is headed, in my opinion. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see what those kinds of tools look like. Sometimes I think for some of us, I think uh, I'd be afraid if I was completely in control of it. Um, the um, uh, And I think, um, but to that point, um, it is interesting that it's sort of in a lot of ways, you know, maybe the evolution of identity is coming back to the consumer. Um, I get the sense that from what you're saying that it's um, technology is not, not just going to solve the problem by itself, right? You know, Jordan, what yeah. is the what is what do you think the role is like between um, you know the way what technology has to do and what what people have to do in terms of protecting their identities? Yeah, we we as consumers have to recognize that we do play a huge part in, in what we're talking about today. We must take steps to pro- procure and secure our own digital safety. Of course. That means feeling comfortable, like we talked about, providing the institutions what they're asking for to validate our identities, but it also means managing your own personal identity. But some of the easy ways we can be doing this are locking your credit reports, plural, uh, or credit history until you need to obtain new credit. Uh, be careful about what type of information you put online for the world to see it. If, if the public can see it, and even a trusted circle of people can see it, so can fraudsters. And that that information can be utilized, as we talked about earlier, to, to harm you in the long run. And last, and, and certainly not least, we have to stay vigilant. When something doesn't feel right, it, it probably isn't. It's okay to slow down. It's okay to double check requests to validate their authenticity. If you get a phone call from your bank and they're asking for for information, it's okay to hang up and, and politely say, I'm going to have to call you back and utilize the number on the back of my card to validate this request. The same thing could be happen, can happen on the personal side as well. If you have a family member and you recognize their voice, even even the caller ID could on your phone could show it's from mom uh, and she's asking for you to wire her money and that seems weird, uh, hang up and, and call mom back and say, mom, was that you I was just talking to? That's perfectly okay, and that's these are the things that we have to do to to make sure that we're all we're all staying safe in a digital age. So let's, I want to wrap up with this this question. If I'm um, you know if I'm a leader in, at a bank and I'm you know kind of creating these experiences for customers, um, you know trying to make life easier and safer and more secure um, for for my account holders. Um, what are some what are some final thoughts on on um, things that I should be thinking about? I think the, t- the technology is an incredible enabler for um, for banks today. Um, the online identity verification capabilities and commercial solutions that are out there today are incredible. They're very easy to use. They're incredibly accurate and highly secure. Um, and thinking about technologies as enabling uh, banks to do more business, to find more account, to find more customers uh, is, an, is an important way to think. And I, so I so banks can be both more secure and um, enable business growth by selecting uh, online identity verification technology. 
and maybe I'll just add that the days of AI versus AI are here. I don't want to paint a, a Terminator 2 type scene here. We're not there yet, thankfully. Large institutions have been using voice recognition software as part of their Know Your Customer programs for years. We know that. Uh, we also know that readily available AI solutions that are free can be used to thwart some of that. We've seen it in theory and in practice. And the call to action here, as, as Greg outlined, is really for financial institutions to continue investment in in leading technologies. Stay current or it's at all possible ahead of these new fraudulent scenarios and schemes. Uh, continual validation that the current suite of tools and technologies employed are effective is also paramount. And lastly, I'll say, Financial institution staff need to be equipped with the right training to recognize signs that something may not be right when engaging with customers, or perhaps I should say may not be right with when they're engaging with fraudsters. We'll leave that at the last word. Thanks, Jordan. When it comes down to it, we have to conclude the banks have great power, and with that must also come great responsibility. So thank you, Jordan and Greg. Uh, thank you for listening and subscribing. Our podcast this month was produced by Stephen Damone with an assist from Colin Brand. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Entrust Cybersecurity Institute podcast on your favorite podcast app. And do visit our website at www.entrust.com slash cybersecurity-institute for more insightful content. This podcast is a product of Entrust, a company with deep expertise and a wide range of solutions to protect identities, payments, and data. You can learn more at www.entrust.com. Thank you all for listening.